Hello, and thank you for downloading That B Word. I am your beautiful bipolar host, Becky. And um, it's been kind of a rough week, guys. <laughs> from everything from that, from the shooting in Las Vegas, to just some personal disappointments that kind of had me reverting to the use of some unhealthy coping mechanisms. It's been a rough week, personally, you know. Been down, been up. I've been attending these online groups on the DBSA. That's uh, that's available at dbsa.org. And I think they're really helpful. At least I feel better after having joined one. It's just nice sometimes to not feel alone. And yeah, and I think that they've been really helpful. Something else that happened to me this week. Now, okay, so my sister flew in from Arizona this past weekend. And as we usually do, um, she and... My other sister and I got together, and we had a, an interesting discussion over a cup of tea, mint tea, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and we, or they kind of reminded me or revealed to me, in a way, um, some interesting history regarding my parents and uh, mental health. I always... I mean, my parents are kind of kooky. Whose parents aren't kooky, right? Um, but after, after having listened to them and recalled some of these uh, different events, I've become more convinced than I already was that my parents have some sort of undiagnosed mental illness. That might be not... That's probably not news to anybody. <laughs> um, since these things do tend to be either genetic or environmental, but it uh, it was really interesting to me. Not that it's going to make that much of a difference going forward, and obviously we can't go backward, uh, but it is of interest to me. Um, I think for some reason a lot of us seem to be really, many of us seem to want to find the reason, right? Or um, at least a reason, a possible reason why perhaps we have a mental illness or, or something like that. So it was just an interesting sort of exchange. I've had some sort of interpersonal issues this week as well. I think most of us have kind of a person, right, that we feel we can talk to. Hopefully, you know, most of us have at least one uh, person that we can talk to and either unburden ourselves or maybe just uh, have a friendly ear to vent to. And my person texted me this week that... Uh, if I were saying if I were to message them anything about mental health 
that they were not likely to respond because um, it was causing them significant stress in their life. Well, uh, that was, that hurt a lot. I feel like, you know, I was there for this person and they're not there for me. And it's been a rough couple of weeks and I could really have somebody to talk to. Um, and they just weren't there. And that really, well, kicked up a lot of feelings of abandonment and whatnot, which I struggle with anyway. So I think that might be at least partly why I have kind of been using old coping mechanisms or what have you. Uh, although I really need to get a rein in on that <laughs> uh, before it gets too out of control. Anyway, let's uh, do some news and reviews. So as far as reviews go, I have just started reading a new book. It's called Mental, a story of lithium love and losing my mind. And it's by by Jamie Lowe. And I gotta tell you, I've only um, read the first chapter, but this writing is blowing my mind. She's an amazing author, if nothing else. Um, so there's going to be more on that to come for sure. But I wanted to mention that in case anybody wanted to go out and pick it up and then disagree with me <laughs> when I give my review. Um, as far as news goes, I think that everybody probably has an idea what I'm going to talk about. That's the Las Vegas shooting. Now that happened several days ago as of, as of this point. And for those of you who might be listening in the future, there was a mass shooting in Las Vegas where a gunman fired upon a concert in Las Vegas. Um, and killed 58 people, injuring 489 other people. And as of this date, and hopefully going forward, it's the largest mass shooting in the U.S. I don't know... I don't know how to say this. I know that many people, I want to say of us, have... What I mean by that is uh, many people who struggle with emotional disorders um, or mood disorders tend to feel things pretty deeply. And I think this is one of those things that kind of hit pretty hard. It's hard to reconcile the fact that this keeps happening. And it's part of the reason why I don't watch a lot of news, right? Sometimes you just have to step away and let yourself, you know, recover and heal and, you know, avoid that stress. Because it is stressful, um, even though, thank goodness, you know, I wasn't there and no one I love was there. It's still very stressful knowing that this kind of thing can occur 
seemingly in uh, one of the most, you know, at a joyous occasion at, at a music festival. So that's kind of where I've been at. I have not been keeping up too much on this, trying to prioritize my my own sanity over it. Although I guess I've had enough stress in my life lately without adding on to it. But I did want to touch on it because I have, in the brief instances where I've uh, in the brief instances where I've read or, or taken in the news the last few days, um, a lot of the conversation has focused around mental health, mental illness. Um, you know, at first they were saying the gunman, and I don't want to say his name, the gunman had not been diagnosed with a mental illness. However, it's looking like he, according to law enforcement, so who knows, but according to law, law enforcement, they believe he did have a severe mental illness that was undiagnosed and untreated. So that worries me. Not only, not only that there are people out there that are untreated and that could do something like this, but that the conversation has turned from preventing these shootings to, what are they calling it, mental illness reform in Congress. And who knows what that even means? Probably nothing, right? <laughs> it's not like anybody gets anything done. But I, I fear that it's going to heighten the stigma, the already existing stigma of mental illness and... I just want everybody out there to take care of themselves, you know? Yeah, I guess that's all I have to say on that topic. Let's move on. There was one other story that caught my eye this week, and that's another football-based story. Um, the Giants' Brandon Marshall, who is a sports ball player, I take it. As you might be able to tell, I'm not a big sports person. <laughs> um, he has really been uh, kind of on the front lines of assisting NFL players with getting mental health assistance, um, which he characterizes as um, a dire need for that kind of health assistance in the NFL, which kind of makes me wonder. I mean, the conversation, what, two years ago, maybe maybe less, was of traumatic brain injury in the NFL. And I wonder if maybe these two things are related somehow. In fact, I'm sure they are. What I've gathered from research is that Marshall himself is diagnosed borderline personality disorder, um, which there's another high-profile person with borderline personality disorder for you. And I doubt that's got anything to do with traumatic brain injury. Uh, but other sort of mood mood stability disorders or anger issues very well could be associated with that. And I know the NFL has taken steps recently to, you know, kind of prioritize the safety of their football players. But, I mean, come on. 
you're running as fast as you can head first into another person, you're going to take some damage. And that's just how it is. But I'm glad that he's talking about it, you know? Just keep talking about it. Hopefully that'll help ball players in the future. It can help a little bit sooner. Because I think that while mental illness is stigmatized in general, even more so for, and I'm making kind of an assumption here, but the more macho um, sports kind of sort of macho personality. So good for him. Well, our interview today is with Jay Chirino, and he's an author. He's written The Flawed Ones. And, you know, it's a really interesting interview. My only regret is that the sound quality is not great. Um, I had to record this via telephone, and unfortunately, it's just not not where I would like it to be anyway. I've tried to clean it up as much as I can for you guys, but it's still pretty rough. So I apologize for that. Uh, hopefully you'll give it a chance because um, uh, he makes some good points, um, especially regarding the healthcare system as it regard in regards to the healthcare system as it pertains to mental health and mental illness. So here we go. Jay Chirino. Uh, I have Jay Torino on the line, author of The Flawed Ones, A Story of Mental Illness, Addiction, and Love, um, coming out November 1st, I believe. Is that right? Correct, yes. Okay, great. And I thought we might start by reading an, ex- an excerpt, which I'll read if you don't mind. Absolutely. Okay. And this is from the sixth chapter of the book. I was nine years old when I experienced my first depressive episode. A lot of people describe depression as a void that swallows you whole and won't let you feel anything at all. My depression consisted of unmeasurable sadness that depleted any positive feeling or outlook for the future. It was a black hole that attracted and swallowed my reasons for being happy, the things I enjoyed doing, the desire to do anything at all. I didn't feel like dying, but I didn't feel like living either. I was alive for the only reason that the lungs still breathed oxygen and my heart pumped blood through my veins. Little did I know that at the time that a nine-year-old should not be feeling such an overwhelming emptiness, but I was. So I thought that was a, a really interesting passage, given that you were, um, that the character, is, I should say, was so young at the time. How much of that is, uh-huh. is your personal experience, and how much of that did you bring from fiction? Uh, well, you know, that chapter specifically is based very much on my own experiences as a very young child uh, experiencing for the first time a serious depressive episode. And uh, so it was very personal to me to write about that. Even though the book itself is a work of fiction, uh, a lot of it is drawn from my own experiences. And this chapter is one of them. Uh, to where it was very personal to me uh, to be able to write and express. and still remember so well those very first uh, feelings of depression 
and a severe anxiety that I started, um, you know, experiencing so young in my life. Right. Yeah. And uh, elsewhere in the chapter, you um, talk about uh, your school experiences. And mm-hmm. one thing that kind of struck me was your description of the teachers would treat the children. And I was actually appalled. Um, yeah. I, I'm not... Yeah. All that young, <laughs> even when I was in school, they didn't make us do that kind of thing. Um, the, you spoke of being made to kneel on bottle caps and that sort of thing. Was that, um, I guess I'm just kind of wondering what school you went to that made you do that. Was that um, in the U.S.? or? No, it wasn't. Um, I was born in Cuba, and I was uh, I was living there at the time. I came over to the United States when I was 12 years old. So uh, my very first, uh, you know, first grade up to fifth grade, I, I lived over there. And, uh, you know, they play by different rules down there. At least they mm-hmm. did back then. And uh, uh, those experiences are based not only on, on my own experiences or what I witnessed, uh, when I went to school down there, but also my parents and what they uh, they told me they went through when they were my age, and uh, things were even worse back then. So uh, yeah, I mean it was uh, it was very much a fear-based system. Um, you know, the teachers had all the control, and uh, it was a different time back then with, without many rules in that respect. And uh, you know, as a child myself, that I was an only child, I, I was very over by my parents, uh, you know, going from that uh, that bubble that I basically lived in at home uh, to the uh, to the anxiety of what could happen at any point in time in school, uh, whether it was happening to me or not, even seeing those kids getting uh, mistreated by by, by school teachers uh, was somewhat traumatic for me and uh, something that gave me a lot of anxiety. Uh, every single morning when I when I knew that I had to go uh, to school and, and face that kind of behavior. So, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like it would be really traumatic to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that, you spoke about your parents' experiences, how much do you think of that generational um, anxiety and trauma um, impacted, like, your own personal journey? Uh, it definitely impacts you a lot, and I think, you know, I, when you say the word generational, I think it's 100% spot on uh, mm-hmm. to where earlier generations uh, were not allowed to express, uh, you know, their anxieties, or were not allowed to express their fears, you know. Right. Um, I still, when I, when I talk to my parents and, and my mother especially, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that she prefers to keep hidden. Uh, you know, from uh, from everybody else, because that's just how they were raised, you know. Uh, the word depression just didn't exist back then. Uh, if you were sad, you just had to get over it and, and find a way to pretend to be okay. And, uh, and I think that builds up a lot of uh, emotional distress uh, within a person. And, uh, and whenever uh, that generation had children, uh, you know, they were only treating their kids the way they were treated themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't very much improvement there. 
uh, until we started breaking that barrier, until we started realizing, hey, we need to talk about this. We need to find a solution to this. Uh, it, it doesn't work any longer to hide your emotions, your depression, your anxiety, uh, your fear, your emotional distress has to be out in the open and dealt with and not just swept under the rug. And I think that's what this generation is, is making the transformation, you know, uh, mm-hmm. talking about mental illness, you know, discussing things out loud, relating to other people that might be going through the same thing. And and I think that that has a lot to do with the movement that we're seeing nowadays in regards to changing the face of mental illness. Right. Yeah, I know that um, you're a mental health advocate in addition to being an author. Is that when you say that this generation is doing a lot better, Did you, are you speaking of um, Cuban-Americans specifically or just everybody in general? Uh, well, my experiences personally obviously have been here in America, and mm-hmm. uh, don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of work to be done, right. uh, especially when it comes to mental health professionals and the way they're treating patients and, and, and you know, uh, overall just not medicating patients but actually treating them, you know, on a personal level, and that's something that I talk about in the book as well. Um but here in America, uh, in the United Kingdom as well, I've noticed that a lot. Uh, the United Kingdom being one of the countries that has the most depression per capita uh, mm-hmm. nowadays. Um, you know, there is a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of people trying to break the stigma. There's a lot of people trying to educate others on what mental illness uh, really is like. Because, I mean, media, television... Uh, the stigma itself of society has kept, uh, you know, has kept a barrier between what mental illness really is and what society views it as, you know. And mm-hmm. and I and I really appreciate the courage that a lot of people are are having to say, hey, I suffer from mental illness. You know, I've been through this struggle, and I'm going to talk about it because I don't want uh, other people to go through what I went through, or at least I want other people to find the right help. Uh, to find the right counsel and don't be afraid to talk about their issues and, uh, you know, be open about getting treatment and actually finding the right treatment and not just having people telling them to get over it, they need to stop being sad and uh, they need to be stronger emotionally, you know, because we already know that that's been proven, that that's not the case and that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, uh, you know, that's what I've been seeing lately and the more involved I get into the mental health uh, movement and, and what everybody's doing nowadays, a lot of people, especially online, uh, I'm really proud of where we're uh, coming from, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did want to ask you, where did the name The Flawed Ones come from? That's a very interesting <laughs> question and one that I get a lot. <laughs> and uh, I've actually had people tell me, you know, mental illness doesn't mean that you're flawed. And once they read the book, they'll realize that that's not what I meant. Uh, mm-hmm. The last time I was actually in a psychiatric institution where, you know, a lot of the stories in the book come from from the people that I met there, I had a really huge epiphany uh, when it came to humanity as a whole, right? Um, I was seeing these people that had very debilitating deficiencies at very different levels, you know, uh, some more than others. Um, but it struck me the fact that they never lost their humanity. 
uh, the basic humanity that we all have. I love being the main aspect of that. We all have that very instinctive love inside of us that, you know, make us human. And uh, I saw these people that were very, you know, flawed, uh, quote-unquote, uh, based on their mental deficiencies, but they were still human in their core, and they were still very much like the rest of us. And and it felt to me that it wasn't one specific group of people with one specific condition that is flawed, but humanity as a whole has its flaws. You know, we're all flawed mm-hmm. in different respects. And in that sense, we can relate to each other. Um, so the book, The Flawed Ones, doesn't refer to the flawed ones as the mentally ill. It refers to the flawed ones as humanity. You know, and how we can all relate through the different flaws and the different strengths that we have as one whole, you know, group of beings. And, and that's what I try to relay in the book, to try to bridge that gap uh, between people that see things one way or the other and find the common ground. And, hey, we all have our flaws, we all have our difficulties, but we also have our strengths, we have our love, and we need to work together in really understanding each other and, uh, you know, growing as a society. Right. And I know I've yet to meet a perfect person, so <laughs> I think that your, your uh, description of everybody with a squad is definitely pretty apt. Um, so you mentioned um, spending some time in a, a mental facility. Would you, do you mind um, sharing a little bit of your story leading up to that? Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, as I said, you know, my depressive and anxiety uh, issues started very young in life, and mm-hmm. at that time, the stigma that surrounded mental illness did not allow me to really uh, find the right treatment. So when I became a little bit older, I discovered the uh, calming effects of alcohol. I, I became uh, very quickly. I became. Uh, uh, dependent on alcohol at a very young age, and uh, obviously that started bringing me trouble as I uh, grew and became an adult and uh, got married and then divorced and uh, all things of that nature, and I was still suffering from a lot of depression, and then on top of that, the alcohol came in the picture and, uh, you know, basically rendered me useless. You know, I went from job to job, couldn't keep a job to save my life. Um, I mm-hmm. had no money, um, you know, my social uh, interactions with people were always horrible because I was drunk most of the time. Um, you know, I started drinking in the mornings all the way till nighttime. Um, I mean, I did horrible things that I, I don't remember even doing. You know, people would come up to me, the people that were close to me at that time uh, would come up to me and, and ask me, do you remember what you did yesterday or what you told me or, you know, uh, things like that, and and I wouldn't, you know, and uh, even the guilt and, and and the fact that I knew that I was uh, going uh, down a very very dark path, I could not stop me from uh, from my behavior. Uh, so then afterwards, I I started going to the doctor and talking about my my anxiety issues, and they prescribed me Xanax for my anxiety, which you know, looking back at it now was a huge mistake because a person a person with an addiction like alcoholism. Uh, should not be treated with another very, very addictive uh, medication. Right, right yeah. Uh, so I immediately became severely addicted to benzodiazepines, especially Xanax. 
uh, started buying them online, uh, bulk orders, and then things were really, really bad. I mean, I would lose consciousness as far as I was concerned for weeks at a time and just go on a path of destruction uh, to where, you know, my parents had to lock me in the, in the house so I wouldn't go out, you know, try to buy more drugs, and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I got in a couple of car accidents uh, without even realizing it. Thankfully, I wasn't hurt or I didn't hurt anybody else. Uh, you know, things were just going out of control. And uh, at that time, the, the, the woman that I was with for for some time decided that she'd had enough. Uh, she left. And I was, I had nothing. You know, at that point in time, I didn't have a life. I didn't have a future. I didn't have any hope. I didn't have anybody by my side that uh, wanted to stick it out with me. And uh, I didn't really know where to turn. Um, so my parents talked to me and they were like, we have to do something. We don't know what we have to do. Uh, let's just take you, take you to the hospital and, and, and see what, you know, what they can help you with mm-hmm. up there. And, uh, that was my first experience in a psychiatric institution. I was a three days. Um, so a psychiatrist, um, you know, uh, got diagnosed with maybe some bipolar disorder, maybe bipolar two. Uh, with uh, severe addictive tendencies, uh, and, uh, you know, they started treating me. Uh, but it took a couple of trials. You know, I had to go back a couple other times until I got my uh, my life together, uh, obviously, and decided that it was time to change and find the right medication regimen that worked for me and uh, actually decided to really, you know, give it everything to uh, uh, to get better because at that point I had a choice. It was either die or get better. There wasn't mm-hmm. any other choice that I that I could make, you know. And uh, you know, that last time that I was at the psychiatric institution, that I was a little better, and uh, I was just trying to detox from a uh, severe round of uh, drug abuse and alcohol consumption. Uh, I started looking outwards, you know. I stopped making excuses for myself, and uh, I started to want to learn more from the people around me. And really, you know, change my own thoughts and change my own behavior uh, because what I had done up till that point had not worked. Uh, you know, and that's when the world kind of opened up for me and I started seeing these people that were a lot worse off than I was and that still had so much humanity and that I could still learn so much from uh, myself, you know. And uh, that's what inspired me to write this book, you know, those people that, uh, inspired me so much to really deal with my condition and, and really realize that I had hope and I, and I could have a future if I really worked on it. Right. So um, what do you hope that people take from from your book? Are you hoping for uh, just a greater awareness or is there something more? Yeah, I, I definitely want awareness. You know, I, I want people to see mental illness and addiction like they've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to see it as a medical condition when they're reading the book. I want it to see it as a human condition. Uh, I want them to relate to these characters as if these characters were close personal friends or family members. Um, I want them to cry with the characters. I want them to understand why the characters do some of the things that they do. And I want them to relate to them on a personal level and understand, wow, this could be me. This could be anybody. And uh, I, I think that some of the other uh, people that will read this book might even realize that they might have a mental illness or that they might need to explore 
uh, treatment uh, for their own condition. And if that awareness comes to light and, and the stigma of mental illness, uh, you know, lessens and uh, more people become educated on what it really means uh, to be mentally ill, uh, I will be happy with that result. Yep. Well, that's a, a noble cause for sure. Um, I think that's everybody's, everybody who's in this community's hope is to at least raise awareness and, and maybe end some of the stigma attached with, uh, mental illness. So here's a question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sure. No, no, go ahead. Um, I just had another question is, um, Mm -hmm. when I've heard somebody ask before, so if you picture your life's journey as a highway, what mile marker do you think you'd be on? That's a wonderful question. I, I think I would have to give that some thought. <laughs> Sorry to mean to throw you a curveball. <laughs> no, I, I, I like curveballs like that. I like things that make me think. What mile marker would I be on? Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you a specific number. I would definitely tell you that I am out of the of the treacherous. Uh, terrain, the treacherous curves that might, you know, throw you off road if you're not paying attention. And, and I am now, uh, I have a more, I have a better idea of what direction um, I'm driving on and uh, what destination I'm driving towards, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, before I didn't really know what my future was going to look like or if I even had a future. Uh, you know, now I'm kind of on that highway, you know, maybe I have the top down in the car, I'm enjoying the breeze, uh, I'm able to enjoy my surroundings and the landscape, and uh, whatever comes my way, I know that I can handle it, and that I have the strength to do so, you know, and I want people to go on that journey with me, I, you know, I want to see other cars on the road doing the same thing, you know, people with sunglasses on and their hair, you know, waving in the air, and and having a good time and, and enjoying life because life is so precious no matter what. And uh, no matter what condition and what struggles we go through, uh, those little moments in life that really make us make us appreciate being alive, that's something that we all deserve to have and that we all should enjoy. Right. Great. Well, that's a great answer. I really like that. Um, do you have any other projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to talk about? Uh, you know, I, I have other projects in mind. I definitely want to see, I, I think that, you know, the book explores, uh, this book explores a lot of aspects of addiction and mental illness, uh, but not all of them, you know, and if it does well and it's well received by, by the audience, I would definitely be willing to do another, another part of the book that explores other parts of mental illness, uh, that I haven't experienced personally, but that I have been, you know, that I have witnessed on other people, that I have talked about other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe experience other, other sides of mental illness that not have that much to do with me, but that still have to do with the community and that awareness still needs to be raised on. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. But right now I'm concentrating on, you know, uh, you know, putting the word out there for the book. And uh, hopefully, you know, getting a lot of readers to enjoy it and uh, to raise more awareness, like we've already said. Great. Um, And finally, um, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to discuss? Uh, no, you know, I think we've, we've covered everything pretty well. Uh, you know, another thing that I, that I would have liked to touch on, like, like we said uh, previously, was, you know, uh, the situation that we have with some mental health professionals nowadays, you know, sometimes we have to go through several psychiatrists 
I mean, find the one that really, uh, you know, cares and that really wants to uh, see us get better on a personal level. So I think that's something else that we have to raise awareness on and, uh, you know, talk about uh, the way we get treated as, as uh, patients of mental illness and how mental health professionals uh, treat their patients. Um, but I guess that's uh, a topic for a, a completely different episode, but we definitely need <laughs> to put the word out there on that as well. Oh no, I completely agree. It's uh, I think that's what turns a lot of people off when they start, mm-hmm. you know, trying to reach out for help and then the help they receive either is adequate or it's just not the right fit for them or they get prescribed the wrong medication as you did. Uh, Absolutely. And then end up with even worse problems. So that's definitely what we're talking about. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, in my experiences, and like I said, and I talk about it in the book, and I, there's a character in the book that's a psychiatrist and, and a person that actually helps the character a lot to really find uh, what really, you know, what the trouble is and, and what he's been struggling with for so many years, you know. Mm-hmm. And that person is actually based on a real gospel that, in my opinion, saved my life because she... Uh, not only medicated me, but she, you know, she took the time to ask the right question, right. you know, before she wrote that prescription. And she took the time to really think about where my issues came from. And she didn't only say, well, let's try this medication. If it works, great. If it doesn't, come back and we'll give you another one, you know. Um, and I greatly appreciate that. So there's definitely mental health professionals out there uh, that are doing an amazing job at, you know, treating their patients. Uh, yeah. But there's also a high percentage that, in my opinion, isn't. Um, right. You know, and then we definitely need to talk about that and raise awareness and, and make sure that, you know, we we get the system to do a lot better job than what they're doing right now. Yeah, hopefully somebody is listening that uh, might not have that experience of finding somebody that this has been helpful for them and, uh-huh. Hopefully that'll keep them inspired to keep looking. So yeah, the the key is to never give up. Right. You know, uh, we all go through those dark days when we don't want to get out of bed. We don't even want to brush our teeth, and and it's okay. You know, when you have a condition, uh, to say I this is all I can do today. You know, uh, if all I if all I can do today is stay alive, then you're doing an amazing job at it. Uh, exactly. You know, but the key is to never, never give up. The days that you have the strength, go out there and try to find a solution. Go out there and try to find the right doctor. Uh, you know, if your doctor doesn't, you know, understand you, if you don't feel like you're getting the right treatment, you have the right to not see that doctor anymore and find someone that does a better job because your life is worth it and you deserve the right treatment, you know. Uh, but if you give up, then that's where the line on the road ends. You cannot give up. You have to take every day as it comes and, and really keep pushing forward because there definitely is hope out there. Uh, there definitely is help and there's people that care. Uh, it just sometimes takes a little while. It takes a little while to find them. But if you keep going and you don't give up, you will definitely find the right help at the right time. And hopefully everybody does that. Awesome, wonderful. That's a, I think that's a, a great place to end a nice positive thing. Um, great. So, would you like to promote your Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, anything like that? Uh, yeah, if, if people, if, you know, any readers want to go to thefloodones.com or Twitter uh, slash uh, thefloodones, 
Uh, they can follow me there uh, on the floodones.com. I also uh, have a really nice blog uh, where I talk all topics mental illness. And, uh, you know, I, I love to discuss just everyday life and, uh, you know, how do we deal with the everyday uh, challenges that mental illness might bring uh, to us. So you can check it out, and it will definitely be a little bit of inspiration for your everyday uh, dwelling. And, uh, you know, I really do hope that it helps you out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thanks, Jay, for the interview. And again, that novel is The Flawed Ones, a story of mental illness, addiction, and love. And that's going to be out November 1st. So today, in lieu of some listener mail, I thought that I would read one of my favorite poems um, by Anne Sexton. It's called Courage. It is in the small things we see it. The child's first step as awesome as an earthquake. The first time you rode a bike, wallowing up the sidewalk. The first spanking when your heart went on a journey all alone. When they called you crybaby, or poor, or fatty, or crazy, and made you into an alien, you drank their acid and concealed it. Later, if you faced the death of bombs and bullets, you did not do it with a banner. You did it with only a hat to cover your heart. You did not fondle the weakness inside of you, though it was there. Your courage was a small coal that you kept swallowing. If your buddy saved you and died himself in so doing, then his courage was not courage. It was love. Love as simple as shaving soap. Later, if you have endured a great despair, then you did it alone. Getting a transfusion from the fire, picking the scabs off your heart, then wringing it out like a sock. Next, my kinsman, you powdered your sorrow, you gave it a back rub, and then you covered it with a blanket, and after it had slept a while, it woke to the wings of the roses, and was transformed. Later, when you face old age and its natural conclusion, your courage will still be shown in the little ways. Each spring will be a sword you'll sharpen. Those you love will live in a fever of love. And you'll bargain with the calendar, and at the last moment, when death opens the back door, you'll put on your carpet slippers and stride out. You can find me on Twitter at thatbword1, that's the numeral one, and you can email me at thatbwordpod at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of each other, everybody.